This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. search feed and uh and then one of the family members still messages with me but the the dallas police uh investigation into katrina mallory is starting to we had two episodes on that last year it's starting to uh hit the news again did you see this i did Mm -hmm. now her niece katrina uh named after Catherine Mallory, because uh, who was also called Katrina, she's someone that I still talk to. And her, her story just keeps getting more fascinating, not less. She's one of those family members from a case that I do like to keep up with because of how much they're putting into it. Like I try and share as much as I can. Anyways, that is in the news. People would like to listen to those episodes. They were, I think, they're in May or June of twenty. 22 and they were called the ripple and the wake it's around there and then there's a sort of a series of cases after that that come from that same area that was something i wanted to throw in for true crime news and you know something i forgot it it ties into what we're talking about today um, and i forgot if we ever discussed it on here and that's the we got into these georgia cases where we were sort like we were debating like what we would cover and what we wouldn't cover. And you and I had, we actually recorded a bunch of different cases down there that we never used because they're, they're sort of inflammatory, at least on my part, I was sort of inflammatory in how I viewed those cases. But one of the cases we did talk about was Justin Ross Harris. And I don't know if we talked about a development in that case. Do you remember? It was from 2022 where they dismissed the murder charges. I believe we did. I believe we did mention it. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know for sure. (laughs) Yeah, so the Supreme Court of Georgia in 2022, they heard arguments for a new trial of Justin Ross Harris, who had been found guilty in the hot car death of Cooper Harris, his son. It was a very, I guess the word for it would be, it was a very lascivious trial. It focused largely on terrible behavior on the part of Justin Ross Harris in terms of uh, sort of extramarital affairs, and there were, I believe, some of the charges were sexual exploitation of uh, children and maybe dissemination of harmful materials to minors that he was convicted of because he was talking to underage girls when he, he had no business doing that and he was exchanging photos with them. It, it but it ultimately that part of his case uh, leads to. A, a big chunk of it being overturned, and he gets uh, a he gets a new trial based on the fact that the Georgia Supreme Court, in a six three decision last summer, they found that the evidence about his sexual activities was needlessly cumulative and prejudicial. What that means is there was such a large volume of it that was really irrelevant to whether or not he 
was guilty of felony murder in the death of Cooper Harris in, in the hot car death. It basically said that a substantial amount of that evidence led the jury to answer a question that is what's known as legally problematic in terms of jury deliberations, and that is what kind of man, quote, is Ross, is uh, Justin Ross. Um, so the they held that that case should have been severed over to be a separate trial. So there should have been separate trials on the sex crime charges versus the child abuse, cruelty, felony murder charges. There was a dissenting opinion in that case that the state was entitled to do that, which I fully expect out of Georgia. But ultimately, in May of this year, 2023, the murder and child cruelty charges against Justin uh, Ross Harris were dismissed. And I thought that was interesting that they they pitched them. And basically, the, the Cobb County District Attorney there said that they had conducted a thorough review and determined that the Georgia Supreme Court's decision uh, prevented it from relying on what they considered to be the most crucial motive evidence in that case. And in light of that restriction, they would not retry him. Now, he's still serving time for the other actions, but uh, ultimately he will not be tried again for the, the murder of his son. And you and I have been researching a couple of different serial killers recently. And the topic of relationships between husband and wives, mothers who have had postpartum depression, uh, a lot of these topics are going to come up in some of the sort of fall episodes as, as we start talking about different serial killers. And while we were doing that, you pointed out uh, a documentary that had come out on an older case. And I had a chance to go and watch it. It's a three-part documentary that appears on Hulu. And we're not sponsored by this. We don't have anything to do with uh, the ABC or Disney families. But I, I do want to talk about that case and sort of the impetus of that documentary and how it's a fascinating perspective on true crime. Plus, for the first time ever, we kind of get to talk about ghosts and poltergeists on true crime excess, which a lot, a lot of true crime podcasts like throw ghosts around and we really don't do that. But in this case, it is a, it's a pretty big part of what's going on. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into this story, but I'm curious, did you know anything about this case before you saw that documentary that you brought to my attention? I did not. Nope. Yeah. I, I remember a very brief, I don't know if it was a segment or a maybe a teaser for an unsolved mysteries that featured part of this story. And then when I went back to look in, I went back to, to find that episode and I realized it was going on. Like it aired on unsolved mysteries during the second part of this story, which is completely different. And that was fascinating to me because I was a junior in high school when I saw that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, like in its first run. And I have to be completely honest when it comes to paranormal things. Um, I have a ghost story myself that I firmly believe was real. But for the most part, when it comes to things like telekinesis and poltergeists, whatever, I think 
99.9% of those stories are garbage. Yeah. They're made up. And, and, and if I come across an unsolved mysteries episode now, like there's been more recent ones, I will watch a little bit of like an alien abduction story or something like a couple of minutes to see if it's something I'm going to get into. And there's some interesting things that happen in those stories that could keep me watching them. But for the most part, if it's paranormal, if it's alien abduction, I skip those episodes. I don't know about you. It just depends. Okay. So the, this starts off with a, a, a seemingly paranormal story. And I'm going to talk about it. And I highly recommend at the end of this, I'll mention the name of the documentary. I highly recommend the documentary as a really good take on modern true crime perspectives. I know I just said a whole lot of things there that seem to contradict each other, but I'm going to tell you a story about a teenage girl from Columbus, Ohio. This girl's name is Tina Resch, R-E-S-C-H. She was a central figure in a series of incidents that were known collectively, and I think there's a Wikipedia under this name, but it's not under her name, as the Columbus Poltergeist. Now, in 1984, there were allegedly observed telekinesis events at her Columbus, Ohio home that drew news media's interest. Now, telekinesis is a hypothetical psychic ability that allows a person to influence physical objects without touching them. So basically, it literally means to move things with your thoughts. This has been the subject of a, of a lot of different movies and a lot of different sort of horror and supernatural novels over the year. Whether telekinesis is actually a thing is going to have to be up to the individual. For the purpose of this episode... We're just going to kind of state that this is what people were observing and saying. Now, in 1984, there were a series of color photographs taken by a guy named Fred Shannon. They were published in the Columbus Dispatch, which was the local paper to Tina Resch's home. These photos purported to show Tina sitting in an armchair with a telephone handset and phone cord flying across her lap in front of her. This is this, this is talked about in the whole first episode of this three-episode documentary series. And there's, like, an element of me that, like, wants to say, you can skip this part. But I do think in order to fully understand this story, like, people should probably at least skim it, watch it, play it in the background. Tina's story and Fred... Shannon's photographs, they end up on a 1993 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which everybody knows what Unsolved Mysteries are. It created a really big hubbub. And a lot of people came out of the woodwork to say, this is BS, this is a hoax, this girl's just faking this for attention. There was a man named Paul Kurtz. He wrote that Resch was a disturbed teenager who faked poltergeist phenomenon because she was craving attention. For those of you who don't know, Paul Kurtz was an American uh, skeptic of everything 
like related to the paranormal. At one point, he was a professor emeritus at uh, at SUNY Buffalo. Um, he taught at Trinity. He taught at Vassar. He taught at Union College. He just did not believe that anything from another worldly realm existed. So that's sort of what he's he's known as for his critiques of the paranormal and supernatural. Uh, he engaged in what's known as secular humanism, I guess it would be philosophizing or, or I don't know how you would say it. It's almost just make that word up. (laughs) Which part? Philosophizing. Well, I mean, he was almost a preacher in that regard. Um, So I don't, it's a, it's a very strange dynamic that he brings into the story. I I think. Yeah, I think, well, there's a lot of people related to this that are strange in this story. Tina Resch, She's the adopted daughter of John and Joan Rush. And by all accounts, there was some physical abuse in their household. And in the documentary, you can hear Tina talking about, uh, related to her current situation, uh, a lot of the things that she knew were from the past. And she uses some interesting minimizing arguments along the way where she is differentiating between spankings and abuse. The Rushes, for their part, were well-known in Columbus. Now, they were foster parents that were known to take in kids, and the estimates were somewhere between 250 and 300 children had come through their home at different points in time. Which is insane. That's a lot. That is a lot going on there. So the idea here is, in, in all of this, is that Tina sees the supernatural horror film directed by Toby Hooper that was written by Steven Spielberg known as Poltergeist and that this movie had influenced her in a way that she was going to duplicate some of the things that she'd seen in the movie. Now, according to all accounts and the documentary, the family is in on this. They reported seeing things fly around their house, like physical objects flying around their house. Reporter Mike Harden, who was from the Columbus Dispatch, he was asked to come in and assist the family with documenting what was going on. And that's how Fred Shannon gets involved. The Columbus Dispatch interviews Tina and Fred Shannon photographs her and they attempt to catch evidence of this. And to be completely blunt, they fail. That doesn't stop them from printing photographs that seem to show some telekinetic activity. In my opinion, the photographs look like the kid is the one moving the things and they just happen to snap the photo at a moment where it's not completely obvious that she's doing it. A parapsychologist named William Roll gets involved. And I think they called him Bill throughout the documentary. Is that what you heard or no? I think so, yeah. So he stays in Tina's house, and he says he's going to investigate this this, uh, case. And he tells the family that he believes her and that he, he believes there's been genuine, spontaneous psychokinesis happening in the house, which is an interesting choice of words because, okay, And they don't point this out in the documentary, but I'm going to point it out here. Based on the words used, telekinesis, psychokinesis, 
it's not that they don't think Tina is doing this stuff. It's that they think that she's doing it with her mind. Now, that's very different from a straight-up poltergeist. I just, I'm saying that because, like, just in terms of, like, technical terms, that's really different. Because they're sort of giving Tina these powers, kind of like, I don't know, do you remember the movie Carrie? Yeah. It would be in, in line with, like, that idea. Now, William Roll, he never observed any object move by itself. There was an incident where a picture fell from a wall in an upstairs room, but Tina had been alone in this room. Roll wasn't looking at the picture when it fell. There were a couple of instances that they capture on video. I'll get to that in a second. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. James Randi, who is an investigator for the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of Paranormal, he tries to get involved, and he gets refused access to the household. And why that happened, we don't really know. He ends up investigating the case, and he later says that he thinks it's all BS. He thinks that Tina was just faking the alleged poltergeists. Now, uh, according to Terrence Hines, and Terrence Hines is a professor of psychology at Pace University. He he wrote a little bit about like some of the things that had happened. And online you can find a quote from him where he says, the, the Resch poltergeist turned out to be so elusive that no one ever actually saw a single object even start to move of its own accord. This included the newspaper photographer who found that if he watched an object, it stubbornly refused to budge. He would hold up his camera and look away. One of the photos obtained in this way was distributed by the Associated Press and touted widely as proof of the reality of the phenomenon. Examined closely, the photographic evidence in this case strongly suggested that Tina was faking the occurrences by simply throwing the phone and other flying objects when no one was looking. Randy's careful analysis of the other photos, many unpublished, of Tina and her flying phone strengthened the conclusion that she was faking. The editor of the Columbus Dispatch at the time, Luke Feck, embarrassed by the revelation that he and his paper were taken in by so obvious a fake, refused Randy permission to print the photos he had given him earlier in an apparent attempt to suppress the evidence of Tina's trickery and the newspaper's credulity. I got to say, the first thing I thought when I saw the incriminating photos here that seemed to be like proving something are that girl just threw that phone. Like, I didn't have any, nothing here, like, made me think there's something supernatural happening. Did you at any point in time think something supernatural was going on? Absolutely not. Okay. Um, I actually, which I think I kind of figured it out, but I was actually wondering in the context of, you know, what was happening, like, why did this come up? I think it was a way to... Well, they had to connect the dots. Yeah. Because the associations that happen like a little bit later on in the story, yeah, um, without knowing this part, like it's just it's weird because you know, the lady that um was her companion and everything after she went back, we haven't yeah. got there yet, but that's why they did it. But I do think that, uh, for one thing, this brings up so many issues for me, but I don't remember this happening. Uh, I, I don't know that I would. I don't know that it was like national news or anything like that, um, which it should not have been. 
But one thing I don't understand is like, um, if things like that were happening, why did it matter? Okay. Let's say that she's moving things around with her mind. Um, or, you know, there's a poltergeist that, you know, is only there, I guess, when nobody's watching. What difference did it make? None. Like it it always uh, sort of amuses me, sort of amazes me when things like this happen. In my opinion, I have this genuine fear that if something like this were real, like, and I'm going to qualify it by saying, if something like this were real, I think a secret government agency would swoop in and take that person away and we'd never hear about them again. If something like this were actually real. I I don't, I mean, I, I respect that viewpoint. I don't see it that way. I do think that in the eighties, it was, it was a whole lot easier to tout mysterious unknown phenomenon because now everybody has immediate access to video things and, but they also have access to editing. You mean Um, from the perspective of they could document the thing happening? Yeah. Like everybody, like I've said for like a long, you know, we talked, We've talked kind of just tongue-in-cheek about aliens, and I've said, well, we would have seen the aliens by now, right, Uh, on YouTube (laughs) or TikTok or whatever. And so it's that kind of thing where, like, it was easier in the 80s, much, much, much easier to have this type of story, right? Yeah. Uh, because you've got like a couple still photos of garbage. I mean, I, I saw, all I saw was the picture of the phone flying across. It looks like she threw the phone and I'm going, what, what is have? I was so confused by uh, the beginning because the documentary is three parts, and I was so confused by the first part. But then, I mean, it does end up making sense why they did part of it. I think that it undermines the story, though, a little bit. Not to mention the fact, if I recall correctly, during this part of the story, she's 15? 14 or 15 years old. Okay. And to me, I blame every single adult um, that's involved. Yes. And she's um, already in foster care having been adopted so she's on like she at least has those adults in her life right and so she has her adopted parents they bring in a specialist and then uh that guy moves into the house with them and it's i'm going what right it's so bizarre to me it's presented like the foster uh the adopted parents we're at a wit's end or something, sort of. Yeah. It was, uh, they made a big deal out of it, and every single intention was to exploit this. That's um, what I feel like they're doing. That's the only reason you bring the media into something, honestly. I mean, unless you're just trying to provide information, except, you know, her mind tricks and poltergeist weren't affecting anybody at all. But, you know, to the extent they were even saying that they were, it was just, you know, little things that were happening in the house, right? Yeah, like if you've got the uh, the Netflix 10-episode series of this happening, then like in episode three and when the press hears about it from a despondent neighbor, you close the door on the press. You don't invite them in to take all these photographs. 
Or let them live with you. You definitely don't let the guy who believes the child is somehow connected to a poltergeist live in the house. And see, I wasn't. I I was never entirely clear like what they were establishing, like because they didn't establish anything. Nothing ultimately happened in this whole part, right? Um, it was just this weird situation where if it had been happening, they would have cashed in on it, every single one of them. But it wasn't happening, and they couldn't take it to the extreme to fake it well enough to cash in on it is how I saw it. Yeah, you know, the, I felt like this was a weak point in the documentary, and that's why I was saying kind of you could skip it. And the reason I say maybe you shouldn't skip it is because – I feel like in terms of balancing out the documentary uh, series, this is the strongest evidence we have of attention-seeking by a teenage girl who later gets involved in a crime. And I actually feel like it sort of points to a functional level of Munchausen by proxy. And, Interesting. And, and that's why... I'm like, okay, that makes me think some other things. I, I feel like it's a weak point to make it its own episode in the documentary, but I still stand by the fact that I feel like it balances some of the scales there. Now, the sort of wrap up on the paranormal part of this, and, and like you had mentioned, so they move this guy in, and at one point, this girl has a companion with her 24 hours a day watching her to try and see if this is real. And that companion appears in this documentary. They have a television crew that comes in, and they show this in the documentary. It's quite fascinating. They're there to document and interview the people involved in this, which is sort of like the cashing in part of this. But they catch footage of Tina deliberately knocking over a table lamp and then screaming as if in fright like she didn't know it had happened. And the way this goes down is it happens. They ascribe this to the poltergeist. And then afterwards on the footage in slow motion, you can clearly tell that she is doing it. So she gets confronted about this videotape and she claims that she did it to get the reporters to leave. Going back to Randy for just a second, James Randy, he characterized the situation as being a hoax by an adolescent girl seeking attention and saying that all the examination of available material indicated that fraudulent means or perfectly explainable methods had been employed to provide the media with sensational details about what would have otherwise been a trivial matter. That's his that's a quote from a rough quote from him, kind of a paraphrase. But essentially, James Randi thought like you thought, like, why are they even doing this? Um, he did examine a roll of uh, photos that were taken by press photographers, and they could see different things in the photos where the sofa would move by itself. But if you looked at the photo in the roll before that, she had her foot hooked on the leg of the sofa, then like she broke a picture frame. There, there are multiple things where he came to the following conclusion in spring of 1985, and he published it. The evidence for the validity of poltergeist claims in this case is anecdotal and thin at best. The evidence against them, in my estimation, is strong and convincing. So this girl does what she needs to do from the perspective of starting over. And she ends up moving away, which I think I would have done as well if I had been involved in this. Um, whether, you know, she she definitely 
bears some of the responsibility for the cause. But the truth is, like you said, there were adults around her who, who should have been making this not happy, so to speak. Now, from, from what I've read, and this comes from a number of places. The Star News has this. Atavis Magazine has this. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution covered this case. Because we're in Ohio right now, but we're heading down to Georgia. Allegedly, the adoptive brother in this situation had been accused or has been accused of having molested Tina. And that is uh, apparently began about three years before we see sort of the results in this attention seeking ploy of the poltergeist. She was afraid to tell her parents. And when she did finally tell her parents, they did not believe her. And this is from a writing that she has that's quoted in a couple of the articles. And it's brought up briefly uh, as a a letter she's written in uh, the documentary. Some weird stuff happened with Bill Roll, too. And I'm not accusing him of anything. But, like, he's got a book in all of this that allegedly he had told the family he was going to give her a cut. And all these things were going to happen. And the family lets... Bill Roll take Tina away from Ohio to North Carolina. What happens there is sort of up for debate, but they bring her down to North Carolina and they essentially make her a guinea pig, I think would be the way. I don't know if, or goldfish. What do you think of that part of the story when they bring her down and start observing her to see if what's happening is real? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, they did bring in her companion person, right? Yeah, talk about Jeannie Lagle. That she's a she's a psychiatrist. She had experience with hypnosis, and she Jeannie Lagle, who appears here and is quite put together now, I'll say that was sort of a babysitter for pretty Gina much. Rush. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So he did it in furtherance of you know his study of this phenomenon. I feel like they were probably, I I wasn't sure exactly why they took her. I I felt like it says a whole lot. I mean, because she did have that female, she was a young female adult companion, right? Which is perfect for a 15 year old girl. But because she had her, like, it didn't like seem like anything nefarious, right? It said a lot that the parents, one, let her go, uh, and that too, he took her, and so it it is a strange thing to put a teenager in a goldfish bowl, basically. I mean, because they were observing her, yes. and to my knowledge, like still nothing ever happened. Now he did. The reason he he was a a professor or a researcher at a college in North Carolina. So his office and his whatever was there, and that's why they ended up going there. But it was pretty short-lived. I don't know how long she stayed. Uh, It's less than a year. Right. And so, and then he dropped her like she was hot. He did. And the parents seemed like they were ready to get rid of her, meaning the adopted parents. They seemed like they were ready to get rid of her as well. Because there was never a conclusion to all this hype uh, that was satisfactory to 
everybody who is saying like, oh, this phenomenon's happening. It's like this real whatever they were asserting, right? Because none of it was real. And so the way, how do you like stop dealing with that once you decided that? Well, everybody just pretends like it didn't happen, right? So essentially when she's 16 years old, they sort of, they have this break and Tina goes from the North Carolina situation with uh, William Roll and Jeannie Lagle. She moves back to Ohio, and at 16, she gets married. According to letters that she would later write, her husband at the time was abusive. He bound her, he gagged her, he raped her, and he would beat her unconscious. At one point in time, he burned her clothing to keep her from leaving him, and she jumped from a second-story window and ran barefoot through the snow wearing shorts and a T-shirt to get away from him. He tracked her down, and he dragged her home. She said she stayed with him because she would leave, but then he would stalk her and she would go to her parents and she would threaten her and she would threaten her parents. So she does finally manage to escape from this first husband and she ends up becoming pregnant. She has the baby and the baby's name is Amber. Finally, Tina ends up marrying another man whose last name she took. She stops being Tina Rush. And she becomes Christina Boyer. This man had promised to be a father to Amber and a husband and partner to Christina, but he soon became abusive towards both of them. And a social worker told Christina that if she didn't leave the relationship, the state of Ohio was going to take Amber away. They bring this up over the course of the documentary. There are multiple issues with social services and Christina. A lot of those, from what I can tell on paper, seem to stem from reports that Amber's father was abusing Christina and abusing Amber. And they closed the cases out as unfounded on the basis that Christina get Amber away from the father. This happens because, and this is according to all the materials that I put together, I don't have the specific details, There's a particularly bad beating of Christina and the local police agree to arrest the husband. She packs her bags and she heads south. Now, what's interesting about this is she heads to an area where Jeannie Lagle and William Roll had moved. They're down by a small university in Georgia, Carroll County, Georgia, literally in, in uh, I think it's Carrollton, Georgia, is the city they're in. It's a very small place. So Amber was three years old, and Christina decides that she's going to start a new life down there. Now, she gets some help from Jeannie Lagle and from William Roll, and they are very invested, I guess would be the word. It's a little strange, like how this relationship all plays out. Uh, I will say that what we see of William Roll in this is all archival. William Roll passed away in January of 2012. At the the time all of this is going on, he would have been working at the University of West Georgia. His big thing was uh, a term that's called RSPK in the paranormal world, and that is recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. So I can see a little bit of why he's so invested in this young girl, because in terms of media and stories that like we could go and hunt up, 
she is largely the only story that fits one of his big theories that he spends his whole life talking about. Jeannie and William, they get together and they decide that they're going to try and study with Christina. They're going to study her. I say with her, but they're going to study her. But while Jeannie and William had been a team for a long time, Jeannie finds out that role is preparing to present at different parapsychology events, leaving her out of it. Not only that, he had begun to work with another researcher. And this is where the information gets out that he is indeed writing a book. Now, this makes Jeannie mad because she felt like she had been the one who had the relationship with Christina, who the book is going to be about. And she had spent a good deal of time sort of coddling Christina and doing what she termed the heavy lifting. Jeannie goes to Christina and says, why don't we write a book together? Just the two of us. And Christina says, yes, that's what I want to do. I've been dreaming about that. And I want to get enough written to offer this to an agent who would pay us to finish it. She has this whole plan. And I've got to say that one of the things they do really well balancing in this documentary is Christina has hopes and dreams, but she is not super educated. She has a very rough time being a mom. Do you think that would be fair to say it that way? I think so. Yeah. Jeannie is trying to help Christina get on her feet down in Georgia. And she's doing different things where she's typing up research notes and she's doing some very basic tasks for her. And Christina Boyer in April of 1992 is she ends up with a, a different man. Uh, she ends up with a, a boyfriend named David Heron. Now, David Heron lives in a trailer right outside of Carrollton. And on April 14th, 1992, Christina Boyer is trying to get money to get a Easter basket for her daughter. And I don't know, like, I think most people know what that is, but it's just a little basket full of like treats and maybe some toys and stuff. One of the things that happens in the South is Easter becomes a time where people will get like a new spring outfit, like a little dress and new shoes. And people take a lot of pictures. Amber's adopted grandmother, Joan, had sent a dress down for Amber to have uh, for Easter pictures. And Christina is determined that she's going to work with Jeannie to to get some money here. A few days prior, Amber had hit her head on a curb after scrambling out of her car seat. And that's according to David Heron telling a story to Amber's mother, Christina Boyer. Uh, according to Jeannie, Amber was a really active kid and she did run into things and fall and she bumped into things. Um, she was hard to control. She was kind of a wild child. They call her headstrong. I don't know if that's an accurate description, but she's just an active kid. So after the incident where Amber hits her head on the curb, Christina calls Joan and says, what do I do if this has happened to her? And Joan says, just keep an eye on it. If you see any strange behavior, then you got to take Amber to a doctor. And she basically listed off, according to this documentary and according to what's later testified to in court, she lists off the things that like would indicate a concussion had happened, nausea, vomiting, issues with her eyes. Christina doesn't want to take Amber into work with her. She knew that she could get more work done at 
Jeannie's office if if Amber was somewhere else. So David, her boyfriend, he says that he will look after Amber at his trailer just outside of town. Now, they've been dating for a couple of months at this point. And one of the reasons that Christina feels pretty safe about David with Amber is that David has a daughter around Amber's age. The last thing that Christina Boyer remembers is she saw Amber sitting with David Heron and holding a book. And the two of them looked fine as she left his trailer to go into work. Work was not all that eventful. So Christina finished up the assignments that Jeannie had given her. She says bye to Jeannie. She gets in her car to go home. She pulls into the driveway. And as she's pulling into the driveway, Jeannie is getting a phone call from David. And David says to her, I can't get Amber up. And he was indicating he couldn't rouse Amber, that she was asleep and he thought she was unconscious. And Jeannie assumed that David is like over-exaggerating the situation. She says, don't worry about it. Christina's on her way there. And as soon as she's there, she'll take care of it. So Christina arrives at David's trailer. Amber is indeed unresponsive. So Christina and David, they put the girl into Christina's car and David drives the car while Christina attempts to give Amber CPR. Amber doesn't wake up. They end up in the, the hospital. And it's, this is the second episode of the documentary. It's pretty dramatic. The, the doctors are observing injuries on Amber, who's unconscious. And after a little bit of time and a lot of work by the doctors there, they pronounce Amber dead. The hospital staff observed that Amber had bruising on her face and her body. So they immediately are, they're, they're mandatory reporters. Uh, definitely today, even back at this point in time, they would have been mandatory reporters, which means if they observe child abuse, among a couple of other things, they have to report that to the police. So the hospital staff calls police and they call child services and they have them come out and uh, start an investigation into what happened to Amber that ended with her lying dead in this hospital room. The cops basically look at the situation, take down a few notes, and they say, we want to get a statement from you. And Christina agrees that she will go and give them a statement about Amber. They also take David into custody and they bring him in and they interview him. Now, I have not heard the full interview tapes of either one of this. I've heard bits and pieces of these. Very generally speaking, uh, what happens is David is from this area. He goes on trial. He is found guilty of abuse and sentenced to 20 years. 20, 20 years. The way that the interrogation goes down from what we're shown in the documentary, meaning there could be some gaps in it, it appears to me that the police approach was this little girl is dead and one of the two of you did it. Which one did it? They do search David's home. They put a trial on. The idea the documentary gives you is that David was let go because he was local. Now, they take a completely different approach of Amber's death when they go after Christina. First thing that they do is they stir up the death of Amber for Christina in a way that like, you can only do in the South today. And that is they made it a spectacle. They made it a huge deal that a child had died. And slowly but surely, 
details about the rest of Christina's life start dripping out into the local gossip mills and the local papers. But the big thing they do is because of that community response is they put Christina uh, in a position to be charged with capital murder. This is something that happens in Georgia. And I consider it in a lot of instances to be overcharging. No matter what happened in this instance, I think charging the mom with capital murder was overcharging. Christina ends up with, so first of all, she's in a position where she's just lost her daughter. And if you believe her story, she doesn't know what happened. There wasn't enough going on. Um, There were several falls that they mentioned while Amber is in the custody and care of David and Christina. But ultimately, they make a case that there has been such ongoing abuse of Amber that this last injury, which caused a serious brain bleed and killed her, was just the last in a series of terribly abusive things that have been happening to this child. Does that feel like the impression you got there? Right. actually comes up in the documentary that with regard to, I don't know if it was the doctor or the medical examiner, with regard to them, they felt like it was the worst case of child abuse they'd ever seen. Yeah. And I, you know, I hear that all of the time and I, I understand it from the perspective of like interviewers getting that soundbite um, and, you know, needing that to happen in court in order to deliver a particular type of verdict from everything that's been described here. I will say I finished the documentary and I have no idea what actually happened to this child. I know that. So she was three, right? So um, yeah, three years old. And three-year-olds can, uh, they can have a lot of uh, bruises on them and not be abused children. It is really kind of, it, you know, and obviously I'm not a medical professional, I do know if sometimes if you were to see me, you would think I was an abused person, but I'm not like I just get bruised. Right. Uh, I I wanted to point out uh, it's sort of the order of things here. Uh, Tina is actually charged and she takes a plea before David is convicted, before David goes on trial and is uh, convicted of uh, the cruelty to children. That plays in a little bit. Now, granted, he, you know, he he got 20 years for that. This is not a situation where he got off with nothing. Watching uh, the documentary, it puts like this whole new light onto it, especially since it's so long later, right? Um, because it's in uh, 93, I think, 94. 90... You're talking about like the the incident with I'm talking about the adjudication that's happening. So Tita was charged with aggravated battery in October of nineteen ninety four. Yeah. And she has a public defender who is able to a capital defender. Yes. That's what I was looking for. See he's on the documentary, her actual attorney is. I don't know that I can say this. 
but I genuinely mean no disrespect when I say it, but it's probably going to sound like I'm being disrespectful. Like she had a good old boy, Georgia attorney. Yeah, she really did. And so she's, she's coming up for trial in October of 1994 and her lawyer's name is a guy named, he's a guy named Jimmy Barry. And he definitely has been in this town, in this County, in this area doing these cases. He has this pretty stellar record that appears to come from him having all the loser cases take plea deals. I think he says in the documentary, he had only had two people sent to death row and he had had, he, I will give him this. His name is on a lot of capital cases. It is a lot. I think that he's one of the only capital attorneys around that area. I think that is probably what's happening here. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, nice guy. He, and I know like every single thing he was saying, like he genuinely believed what he was saying. He genuinely believed like he took this case and he was the defense attorney that he needed to be for this defendant. It, it just, it collides so many things together that it's really hard to get into all of them. But essentially he sits her down Uh, They're talking with the district attorney and he explains to her that if she goes to trial, you know, she's going to be sentenced to death. And the only way to avoid this is to take a plea deal, to plead guilty and take a plea deal. Yes. So you're talking about a 24 turning 25 year old girl. Like he just birth, lost her daughter. Just lost her daughter. And the response by the jail once they arrest her, and because she's not ever getting bail in this situation, uh, is to psych her out and to basically pump her full of drugs for the depression and the anxiety and all of the trauma related to this. On top of that, they're giving her sleep aids and antipsychotics. So you've got a girl who's basically napping 24-7, who is sat down by a Georgia good old boy public capital defender who certainly knows the law and on October 31st, 1994 sits down and says to her, you know, just like it is 1965, you're going to be put to death. He's probably not wrong. And that's more of a reflection on the legal system than it is on the lawyer, regardless of what was going to happen. He was saving his own ass. Now he was also on another high profile case. and I'm going to hold that back because that may come up in the future. On a different episode, but I'm going to hold that back. He was working a very high-profile hitman case at the same exact time that he's working her case. And he did not want to deal with this girl who he felt like had shaken baby syndrome to her daughter. For those of you who don't know what that is, shaken baby syndrome is a a phenomenon uh, that began to happen just in time where – a lot of these cases were suddenly being charged as murder cases. And I'm not saying this is not a murder. I don't want anybody to think that that's where I'm headed with this particular case. But in the 70s, someone decided these are now going to be murder cases. And today, shaken baby cases are largely considered to be murder cases. They're not always murder cases. This happens to be um, one of those. Um, did he actually say that? I'm sorry. He didn't literally say that, but he was saying, you know, in Georgia, these God-fearing people kill baby killers. Um, 
Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, and, you know, he could be absolutely right. I would assume he knows his audience. But shaken baby syndrome is literally when you pick up a baby and you shake it because you can't do anything else with it. It's crying and screaming, and it grates on nerves after a while. And so you're like, please stop crying. And and the thought is you're shaking the baby. It's actually nearly impossible for a three-year-old to die from shaking baby. I, that's why I was saying it the way I was saying okay. it. I was being tongue in cheek, and I'm clarifying that. They're too that. big, right? Yeah. They're too big to shake. Like it takes because it's essentially the brain moving in the skull, and it it creates damage that causes the brain to swell, and then they die. And um, yes, it's really terrible. It's much better to just let your baby cry it out on their crib. Right. I just I was giving an example of like a traumatic injury that can have like sort of non-specific symptoms that present and this guy saying like i really don't have time to deal with that on a on essentially a pro bono case well and he i mean granted he he's a defense attorney and i feel like uh putting the death penalty punishment saying if you don't take a plea you're going to be put to death i feel like it's certainly unethical right but it's also just like wrong in so many ways. There's um, an element of it that is simply informing your client, but it can be overdone to a degree. In this particular instance and time, Georgia would have had the electric chair. So the image that you're giving your client is that they are going to be sat in a chair like Ted Mundy with a shaved head and a switch is going to be flipped that's going to zap them to death. That's the image that you're giving this 24 turning 25-year-old girl. Right. And so the response, of course, you know, with my smart ass self at the age I am now would be why? Because you're not a good enough attorney to, you know, handle the case. And I would have loved for her to have been able to say that to him. Right. Because your defense attorney can put on a defense regardless of whether or not the punishment's going to be death and regardless of whether or not you're being you're going to take a plea, right? Yeah. And so that element of this case, it really bothers me. It bothers me to no end. And, of course, what ends up happening is she uh, she says, I don't want to plead guilty. And so they allow her to, to make an Alford plea. She enters an Alford plea, and she maintains her innocence. And what was the actual charge? It was, it was murder with uh, malice. Okay. And so she enters an Alfred plea. She is given a life sentence plus 20 years. Yeah. So, so for the, the malice murder gets her life. And then on top of that, she pleads guilty to aggravated assault. Now, I know that there's tons and tons of examples of this. I typically don't get to see one like right in a row like this, though. So I'm going to point it out. How can you plead uh, how can you enter an Alford plea, which is where you're acknowledging that there's enough evidence to convict you, but you're maintaining your innocence? How can you enter an Alford plea on a malice murder charge? Uh, you happen to be in the state of Georgia. <laughs> because, I mean, I'm sure, you know, everybody realizes how ridiculous that is. Uh, they, they worded this. If you, um, I did pull up and, and look at some of the court records here and they worded it in a way that was especially 
damaging to like like what she was signing. There, I, I promise you, the one thing I know for sure is that Christina Boyer, at the time she signed this plea, considering the treatment she was getting and the situation she was in, had no idea what she was signing on. And the the language that they put into this plea agreement that she signed off on was crazy. She pled guilty to murder, maliciously causing cruel and excessive physical pain and failing to seek proper medical attention on top of pleading guilty to aggravated assault under this Alfred plea agreement, which the the all she got out of the Alfred plea agreement, meaning was not, not going to be the death penalty. And to me, um, that's the wrong way to go about that. I do realize that people get sentenced to death at times when it, it's not warranted. But you would think, like, I, I'm just saying, like, this one crack that we happen to see here, this it's showing the beginning of, like, the whole thing falling apart, right? Yeah. Um, as far as this attorney. Now, this attorney, he's he's very forthcoming. At, he's a very successful guy. I'm talking about her um, defense attorney. The original defense attorney? The original one. Okay. And um, he says, you know, that he's about tired of hearing about, uh, you know, all these people sitting behind their computers Monday morning quarterbacking his actions in this case. Well, then he should have thrown a touchdown pass. If you fumble the ball, (laughs) people are going to look at you and wonder what you were doing. And so I I will say that there is, especially these little areas, there's a certain thing that even he is going to get – uh, kind of flack back for saying like, oh, we're not going to take this plea. We're going to go on to trial. Like his colleagues, his his adversary in this situation, like there's actually like pushback because that's not how they do things there, right? Yeah. If we could for a second. So we've got a situation. The mom has now ple- pled. She has entered an Alfred plea. She is sentenced to life plus 20 years. And then her her boyfriend, David Heron, who was with Amber at the time she died, the documentary pretty well establishes the fact that during like the hours of like 11 and 6, uh, Tina is not at the house. Amber is at the residence with David Heron alone during this period of time, right? Correct. Okay. And you've got different things that kind of build up. And I don't even think that there's any, I I don't even think anybody ever says that that's not what happened. So David Heron is then convicted of cruelty to children. He went through a trial, right? And he sentenced to 20 years. Okay. So essentially they did not find him guilty of the malice murder charge. Right, which technically under Georgia statute is impossible for them to do, but I'm not going to touch that. That That's what they do. Okay. And so now this, it became clear to me. So I think you've got two different things happening here. And all the officials now, of course, you know, we're 30 years out at this point, almost 30 years out. None of the people that, uh, like the district attorney is not the same person, right, obviously. And so it's a whole new generation. Now, You've got a situation where you've had these adjudications. Uh, David Heron got out of jail already on his sentence. And... Christina Boyer has now been denied parole 
nine times, ten times, a lot of times, a lot. Okay, so if we separate it out and we say, okay, there are allegations of abuse of this child, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's something, it actually does come up in her charges, I guess. But then if you boil it down to the child dying, there's an allegation, or there's a uh, finding of the medical examiner that the, what happened to the child that ultimately resulted in her death happened in what's the six hours preceding it? No, no, it's not. It's, it's more specific than that. It depends on the information they give on the one hand related to Christina's case, which is not a trial, but it's the, the evidentiary hearings versus what they present at David's case is slightly different. That's one of the things that the filmmakers here get hung up on. But the, the idea is this, the medical examiner at the time said that the effect of the injury that killed Amber would have been so great that it would have had immediate and observable symptoms. Like 15 to 30 minutes, you would have seen life-altering behavior. And then between 30 minutes and three hours, she would have came to rest where she came to rest and died. Yeah, been unconscious, like she was basically found. The filmmakers are are the the, uh, investigators that are trying to look into this. They even go so far as to go to another doctor and have them independently review the situation. And That's they, the investigators now. The investigators now. They're not law enforcement investigators. They're part of, like, the innocence part of Christina Boyer's team, right? Yeah, I haven't gotten quite to that part, but you're, I, I can do it in two sentences to so that you can keep moving forward. A team from Georgetown University gets involved in this along with a multitude of citizen investigators. And that becomes Team Christina to be on Christina Boyer's team to attempt to either get her resentenced, out on parole, or potentially a new trial. And I feel like, uh, so this is a three-part documentary, right? Yeah. Forced for the trees, right? Because <laughs> you've got a situation here where a woman... Uh, a mom, a young mom who just lost her daughter was told by her attorney if she did not take this guilty plea, she was going to be put to death. Her own attorney is having this discussion with her, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. She enters an Alfred plea. She's sentenced to life plus 20 years because of this, you know, heinous nature of this crime. Okay. Everybody... Like, I'm putting aside the alleged child abuse, and we're just talking about the death of this child. It is actually not possible for her to have been there at the time the death blow occurred. Okay, so to clarify what you're saying, because what I mentioned 45 minutes ago, which is that... Christina was at Jeannie's office working and would have been working in the time frame of the medical examiner then and now. Two different ways of getting there. Both say basically the same thing. It's uncontroverted. The death blow takes place in a way that ultimately Christina can't, Christine doesn't have anything to do with this. There's the injustice. Okay. Regardless of what else she did wrong in being a mom, 
regardless of anything else that's taken into consideration. Now, there's a side note that's mentioned after David Heron's case, somebody wanted to know why they didn't find David Heron guilty of uh, the murder charge, right? Right. And so he asked the jury, and the response was, well, because she wasn't his kid. I I say I feel like I say that like I'm bringing to light this like really obvious fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is that Amber died in, from something that Christina could not have done to her because she wasn't there. Okay. Now, did did you know Amber fall and hurt herself? You know, well. I don't know what happened, but without question, Christina didn't do it to her. And it, so I I feel like I'm going, oh, wait, why don't you see these flashing lights? Except that it seems almost like the thought was nobody cared that she wasn't there. They held her responsible because they felt like what happened to her was justified because she was the mom. Yeah, it, I'll say this about the documentary and this case at large. And I have looked at all of this from the perspective of going through not just what I'm being fed in all of this, because I don't know that I believe it 100%. Um, I'll say that everyone presented on screen in this documentary believes for the most part what they're saying they do believe it and and they all believe that they're right even with contradicting opinions which is fascinating to me based on the same evidence right and and when i see that happening (laughs) i i'm amazed right uh now i do think that that was one of the angles this documentary uh the 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 producers of this documentary were using, right? Because um, you've got, you know, the people that were involved in the investigation in uh, when it happened, it's saying, you know, I'm a hundred percent convinced of the situation of this case, and I know that the outcome was correct. Like, and they do believe it, and they're not being, they're not holding it like person. They don't think they're holding it personally against her. They're trying to get justice for this child that was killed, that died from, you know, some sort of a head injury. And they all believe it. They all believe what they're saying. And so what do you do with that? Well, so here's where we sort of go. I don't know what happened to this child. I'm just going to say it that way. I'm going to say that there was a legal travesty that occurred to some degree. But I, okay, I read some really odd stuff related to this case. And you uh, you can find a lot of information out there. There's actually, I think it's ChristinaBoyerCase.com or ChristinaBoyer.org. This is actually, in general terms, one of the more well-covered cases that we have talked about to this degree. When I look at it, you know, first of all, if you've never been standing there when someone has to make what I would call an 11th hour decision to decide, you know, am I going to take this life parole situation or, or this death penalty situation? Um, it is terrifying. 
especially when it's a young girl. Um, I happen to have been in uh, a situation 20 years ago where I watched someone making that decision and could not figure out a way to to assist in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I was so young. They were so young. And just watching it unfold was crazy. I will say that with this case, uh, there's there's a little girl that died. And that little girl had a mom who may or may not have a, you know been involved in, in her death. Uh, I do not think that is the case, Mr. Barry, that you take and, uh, and dump off to an Alfred plea. And I feel like it's pretty clear that she wasn't involved with her death. I, if the timeline holds up the way that the medical examiners have painted it and the way that you just sort of articulated it for the audience, then I'm with you. And that's one of the only reasons that I'm putting this case out there is because I would encourage listeners, if you come across this case and uh, you want to do something about it, there are multiple types of petitions out there and you should support it. I do that on, on different cases from time to time. And this is one of those, even if you believe that she did it, at least read about it because there's some element of it that is still a legal travesty, even if she did do it. Right. And I, and this is a good place to point out the fact that she entered into a plea. Correct. Um, 95% of court cases in this country end with no trial, either because of some type of threat or offering, they end up in a plea agreement. And in a lot of cases, that is, it's, that's judicial efficiency, right? Um, however, in uh, this case, what it did was leave a grief-stricken young mother who just lost her daughter in a situation where she was signing her life away and she has no recourse. Okay. Cause you don't get to appeal when you take a plea. Well, in some cases, I mean, there's things that come up, but for the most part, when you take um, a plea deal, your case is over. Yeah. Particularly uh, a lot of these Alfred plea situations, the way that they, mitigate that is they will have some type of future dangling parole. But the, the contradiction in that is, so you've got an Alfred plea that you took, meaning you're acknowledging the state's evidence is strong enough to potentially convict you, but you would like to maintain your innocence. So that's a contradiction of every parole board in the United States, because one of the primary, I, I assume it still is, uh, you have to admit guilt and show remorse. Yes, yeah, yeah, factors in, in allowing parole is to admit guilt, accept responsibility for your actions, and, and, and show not just remorse but also rehabilitation. Now, this case in and of itself is a rabbit hole. And um, I will warn people before going down it, it is a worthwhile rabbit hole. But you have to get past – Like it turns me off that it has this – paranormal thing attached to it because that's what people talk about first and all these articles and even in this documentary the whole first episode is they're talking about the mom and you know you can't judge a 24 year old woman on what she did when she was 13 turning 14 um that's correct and also it's irrelevant um and it undermines her credibility so much and it's not 
really fair because she was a child and she was uh, subjected to things because of her parents doing things and because of these other adults doing things. But it makes the whole situation so much worse. And I almost hate it that like that's how the document, uh, the docu-series starts because it really like it, from I would say like a high percentage of people, when you're when you're watching it, uh, you immediately think like, oh, this doesn't seem very believable. At least that's what I was thinking. But it it plays absolutely no role in what ended up happening, except it does make the connection of why she moved to that area, right, and why. Um, you know, her alibi witness was in her life, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, this case, I, I don't know the answer to this case. I don't have some interesting insight to it. I just hope that people will look at cases like this and take them seriously. Well, and I feel like, just like everybody else on the documentary, which is why I can say it, I feel very confident in the fact that um, this woman, this mom, shouldn't be spending the rest of her life in prison for malice murder because I I don't know if she was a good mom or not. I do know that when evidence shows that a injury an injury occurred that killed the little girl during a time frame when the person wasn't there, that evidence is that and that evidence indicates that it's not possible that she should have been found guilty for the murder. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Okay, I have to ask you this. Do, do you think the medication plays a part in her signing that plea? I have no idea. Um, I feel like I feel like she was uh, like strong armed into it, and I think in that situation, yes, the medication would have it allowed her defenses to be lowered. Not to mention the fact when you've lost your daughter and you have this person that is your assigned defense attorney, like your inclination is to cling to the hope that they're going to help you. What did he say he put in on this case? 17 hours? It was, it was not enough. Yeah. I, you know, this is one of those cases that I, and I'm, I'm being serious when I say this, if I saw this play out in a Netflix, uh, like one hour, 10 episode series, I would not be able to take my eyes off of it. Once I got past the poltergeist thing, they got to get that out there like up front. But Jimmy Barry and like the stuff that he was doing here, he like, okay, I get like he's popping on this documentary to defend himself. He knows he was wrong. All he has to do to fix this is say, I was distracted by another case and I was not paying enough attention at that time. And this whole thing gets a... A, a, a fresh set of eyes on it. And I hate that they end it open-ended with another district attorney taking a look at it, but I'm glad they 
they got that guy's attention. Right. And I mean, the facts of the matter there are, if we're going to, if the, if it's going to be a certain way where like evidence means something, which it should, right. It's got to work both ways, right. When it establishes guilt and when it doesn't establish guilt or it actually establishes innocent for particular charges. Now, you know, I'm not going to argue that this woman didn't do anything wrong to her child. I'm also not going to argue that she didn't abuse her child. There were issues happening there, right? But the fact of the matter is, in the adjudication, she entered a plea, an Alfred plea, to murder. I know. And that's what really bothers me. Now, you say the attorney probably knew it. He, uh, he probably knows that he was wrong. I actually think that he feels like he did everything he possibly could and that he, he did the right thing. It, well, that's okay. The, the, they should take note of that. If if the Georgia bar looks at that guy and thinks, oh, he saved, he thinks he saved her life, they should disbar him. Like, he, because of the the rapid succession of events there, they should disbar him. Well, and I feel like I, I would rather him like genuinely believe in what he did than for him to have been doing something like sneaky and backstabbing. Right. Yeah. Because you know, if you believe in what you're doing, like you're just stupid, you're not like mean. Right. Well, well, they did a lot. Like there's a lot of indicators from what I've read on the different, internet sites on this case, which that's not always the best way to go about like researching something like this, but there's a lot of stuff out there where they sort of just the investigator, uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, the investigators in this thing, they like were pretty hardcore about like trying to make you think something else was happening there. And like, and I say that because, all right, remember with, Justin Ross Harris, they got hung up on him sexting with underage girls, which is a crime. And that is a thing. But I've noticed a pattern in Georgia. And uh, well, so two things. First, I've noticed a pattern where different people who were in situations where parents are accused of killing children, they just did the wrong thing. I say this from the perspective of like medically we're learning that sometimes kids die and sometimes kids have unexplainable injuries and sometimes adults have unexplainable injuries that don't have to end like in a, in a premature investigation saying this person was murdered. And I'm not saying that is or isn't the case here, but what I will say about this case here in terms of like, Georgia nonsense says, just like they did with Justin Ross Harris, where they wanted to show the jury repeated pictures of his penis. They drug out a sex tape in this case. Did you realize that? Yes. Because I'm pretty sure it's in the documentary. I was rewatching the catch up for today and I skipped that part because I didn't totally understand it the first time. But my reading of this case was that they had a tape of a particular guy who was abusing young girls and that uh, Christine was on the, one of the tapes and that Amber was also in one of the tapes. These girls would go to his house and he would pay them to take off their clothes and jiggle and, and be, 
I don't know how to explain it. It, it. It's essentially he's paying them for pornography. And they were going to make her look like a terrible mother from that. And I think that's where Barry tuned out. I think that's where Jimmy Barry went, I can't do this anymore. I can't defend this person. That's entirely possible. And as cases of women having or feeling like they have to do things for money, right? And and she kind of elaborates on like why she was doing what she was doing, right? Yeah. And while and while she realized that it didn't make her look like a good mother, um, that there were certain things and she goes into explaining all the and you know, they make sense logically of, you know, in order to get money, you have to um, have a babysitter. In order to have a babysitter, you have to have money. You know, the chicken and the egg situation. However, I, I, I just want to scream sometimes when this is brought up over and over again, um, as far as like the sex worker industry, however you want to put that, we need to give women more opportunities to work and do other things besides this. Right. And if nobody sees where like it's double-sided there, I mean, I just can't help the situation, but it, I feel like she, um, you know, obviously, yes, there are other things she could have done, but that has absolutely nothing to do with whether in this particular situation she murdered her daughter. Oh, no, I, I wasn't. I'm sorry if I seem to be headed that way. What I'm saying is I think Jimmy Barry looked at it in 1995 or four and well, said. He condemned her for it. Well, he thought that the condemnation would spill out into, as you described it, his audience. And then there was no way he could rehabilitate her in the eyes of the jury, which is a complex role for a capital defender. And because, like, really, capital trials play out two different ways. The first way is you're trying to prove they're not guilty. But if you can't do that, you're definitely try, trying to keep a jury from throwing the switch. And so one of the things I, I, I saw here that bothered me was they never try and – like, when they flip – they try and flip the two of them. Neither one of them tries to point the finger really at the other person. They just kind of like that's the commitment moment for most investigators and in interrogations or interviews where they're trying to get someone to like basically they needed David to try Tina and they needed Tina to try David and they never get that out of them. That's the whole reason I bring up like there could have been a completely different explanation for all of this than abuse to murder because i i believe that like she probably disciplined her daughter and maybe was abusive to her daughter right but i feel like it wasn't anything that she might have readily realized she was being abusive like do you know what i mean when i say that yeah yeah like there's stuff here when i go digging through the court records here there's some weird stuff in here as far as the injuries like the pancreas injuries and some of the other things that went on like it almost isn't explained by the state's explanation of the case. Well, I know. And that, see, that makes it be like this was this unsupervised child, right? Kind and of. This yeah. child was like constantly, um, you know, falling and who knows what else. Because she was three, okay? And three-year-olds 
Um, they are mobile on their own and they have a sense of, you know, good and bad, like doing things that they should do and doing things that they shouldn't do. But they also have a sense where they like want to do all the things they're not supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. It is absolutely possible that, uh, this little girl just, you know, wasn't being watched properly and she continuously hurt herself. I have no idea what happened when you've got a case with facts and evidence that demonstrate the person who took the plea isn't guilty of the crime. You've you've not gotten justice for the victim. Yeah. There's a pretty incredible amount of paperwork in this case. Um, even related to Jimmy Berry, like he testifies in his own defense in I think 2002 and maybe 2004. And so this guy, there's a lot of lawyers involved in this thing. Uh, this guy, Philip Carr gets involved at one point and his claim was that Christina's plea was not knowing voluntary or intelligent. Jimmy Berry shot himself in the foot because he said he had advised Christina to take the plea uh, one, to avoid the death penalty, and secondly, to avoid the mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years for parole. So he he was giving her the impression that she uh, was going to get, you know, parole in a few years. And, like, he states that, he that he expected that she would uh, get parole down the line. He really said that? Yeah, yeah. He said, and that's a court document. That's not somebody's recounting in a documentary. That's Jimmy Berry. So wow, the way he presented it to her and she testified, I think, or had an affidavit and he definitely testified. He presented it to her like she was avoiding the death penalty and she wouldn't have to wait 25 years to get out. That's how he presented it to her. And that was on top of them looking at like she had six different medications she was on at the time, two of which were uh, like problematic. I don't know. This whole thing, like if you go like hunting through uh, like the the different Internet places that you can read about this case, they they accuse like David and her of a lot more stuff in those than in, in what is real. And the investigators are the one who kind of did that along the way because they were like saying things to the media. And I'm really surprised that they got away with what they got away with back then in terms of like giving information out about this case. But there's like all sorts of problems. Like that guy that I was just talking about, um, Philip Carr, he ends up, I think in 2008, he gets arrested for, some crazy thing, um, maybe molesting one of his own children. He got 40 years in prison. And then the doctor involved with her case that had come for all the habeas hearings and, and that he got some kind of crazy, he, he lost his license and something else happened. There's there like, this is a book. This Like when I say this is like a Netflix 10 episode series or a book or something, it's so many different things, but it's what it really is, is it's absolutely terribly tragic and sad for that little girl. Right. And I feel like the fact that it is like a book and like a 10 um, episode series for streaming, like, I feel like that's why, like, the the most important point is missed. Yeah. And when it becomes this whole big, huge thing, it, it like, people, 
they lose sight of what's actually happening here. So do you think that she should be out of jail? I don't think she ever should have been in jail. I agree with that like a million percent. I feel like um, at the very best, it should have gone before a jury. And if a jury had put her there, I would think uh, much less of this, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a risk. And I agree with Jimmy Berry on that side of things, that it is a risk. But the truth is, like, it shouldn't take Jan Banning. And, and we didn't even talk about him here. He's like one of the best parts of the documentary. He just was, he has no idea what he's doing. He's like not even from the United States. And he's like, that woman should not be in jail. Right. And uh, she really shouldn't have been. Um, and man, you know, every time I say something, I, I've taken some hard and fast uh, lines on pleas. Yeah. Uh, and I've discard and I've disregarded situations where I've felt like somebody took a plea. It was their decision to take the plea. They need to, um, you know, they need to reap the consequences of taking the plea. Right. Yeah. And then I get, I, I find more and more cases where I'm going, oh my goodness, like this is so terrible and it doesn't even matter that they took the plea. Like this should not have happened. And this is one of those cases. Now, most of the time uh, with little things, you know, plea deals don't matter. It's only when it, it becomes this, like you're going to be in prison for life situation where it's really a big deal. Right at least for me. And sometimes I just think to myself, like, why didn't they, um, well, I get really irritated at the defense attorneys because I don't think any defense attorney should put their client in that type of position, but I am starting to rethink my hard, fast line on people who have taken pleas that they regret taking. Yeah. What do you think, what's your new line going to look like? I don't know. Uh, do you have a line on it? I mean, I my general feeling on plea bargaining is it should stop happening. But that would, I mean, it would grind the system to a halt. But it would, it, it would minimize like a lot of the problems we have today. Because the minute that a prosecutor offers you a plea that's too good to be true and you take it, you're contributing to the problem. Right, but this isn't a situation where she was offered a plea where, where it was too yes. good to be true. Yeah, I mean, she, this woman has been automatically eligible for parole since 2001 in Georgia. She and But the thing about Georgia is they have, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's this crazy map and how they put parole together. You have to go through all these steps to get to the first parole hearing, and then if you fail, it's nine years you have to wait. And then the next time it's like three years and then it's like two years. And, you know, so she's been automatically eligible for parole for a long time. And I don't know how many times she's been denied for it, but, you know, they present her like she is one of the ideal people. I don't for know. parole? Yeah. Like she's done all the things that she's supposed to do for parole, except admit that she did it. And that's the whole reason in taking that plea in the first place. Well, right, the Alfred plea. And, you know, I'm interested to see how that plays out. But I'm telling you, I feel like, I feel like the, so it gets the story out there, but the way the story is being told, 
in this particular docuseries, which is all I've ever seen about it. I haven't seen any other kind of, uh, like, mainstream media on this case. I've mainly read about this more than Okay. And so I feel like it is entirely possible that um, it's not going to get anywhere because people get caught up on the things that don't matter. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. The poltergeist thing is just, it blows everything out of the water. Some will shine, no matter what they do. Sun shines bright now with you. What a wonderful thing for you to do. Moonshine bright, reflection in your eyes. A finer place he could not find. Winter's cold, the spring Steps I'm running after her eyes. 